Most of us who imagine a better future and even see a path to get there stay stuck. And if we're serious about advancing kingdom work, if we're serious about mission, if we're serious about positive social change, if we really want to demonstrate the love of God in this world, we have to take a generational approach to social change. I think what God showed me in that moment is you don't see everything and you can't control every outcome. But if you are faithful to do what I've called you to do, I'll work the miracles through that faithfulness. Around the world, thousands of children live in extreme poverty. But we can make a difference. Child sponsorship matters. One child Honduras. Welcome to Child Sponsorship Matters. Hey, I am David A. Dean. Thank you so much for joining me for episode two of a series we're calling One Child Honduras. Back in November, Northwestern Media sent 15 people, I was included in that, down to Honduras to see the work one child does in their hope centers. Part one of that adventure was what episode one was all about. So if you haven't heard that, I'd go back and listen to it. Next episode, we're going to finish up the that adventure as well. But this week, we thought we would answer all those questions you have about one child but didn't know to ask. I'm getting to sit down with Scott Todd. He's an incredible guy. He's the president of One Child, and he's going to share with us the vision of One Child, what makes One Child different, and why you should sponsor one of these amazing children at onechild.org. So, Scott, I believe every superhero has an origin story. And uh, uh, everything I know about you, you worked for Compassion for many years, you've got a background in medicine, and now you're at one child. So I'm wondering, what is Scott Todd's superhero origin story? I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I came to know the Lord through an organization called Young Life, and that was uh, a great experience for me. And it was really after coming to faith and sort of learning how to follow Jesus that I encountered this opportunity to sponsor kids. Um, I was an undergraduate, and, you know, the whole thing was new to me, um, but that's where my journey began in terms of learning about the rest of my world, learning about children in poverty, learning about how do I live out my faith, this new faith that I'm trying to grow into when it comes up against these issues like global poverty or or helping a child overseas, that kind of thing. So um, that's when it began, way back in 1989 for me. I I went on into a career in medicine, so I got my doctorate in immunology and was a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University Medical Center practicing in oncology, Uh, became a professor of molecular medicine, um, received grants from the National Institutes of Health and National Science Foundation, American Cancer Society. The career was going great. Uh, And so it wasn't until 15 years after that initial encounter of sponsoring a child that God kind of confronted me again. And there was this moment uh, where I received a literal phone call from someone at Compassion International who simply said, have you ever considered working with us? And it was out of the blue. I mean, it was not on my radar, not on my plan. The, The career in medicine was just, honestly, it was going extremely well. But I knew. I knew in the moment, God is calling me to do this. And, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of conservative in my faith. I'm not the kind of person who hears from the Lord very often. I mean, I have a few times felt this really clearly this is God, but this was a moment that I knew. And yet I also was married and thought, I don't know how my wife's going to feel <laughs> about that. So I, uh, I went home and talked to my wife about it, and she too just sensed this clear confirmation, we're going to do this. Um, so yeah, we left our whole lifestyle, not just the career in medicine, but everything that kind of came along with that, including where we were living and our friendships and everything else to pursue this calling to help kids at risk around the world. And so I then went on um, for 13 years of service at Compassion International. I started out as a regional manager of volunteers. 
Um, so it had nothing to do with medicine. It had nothing to do with leadership or anything. It was really just helping get kids connected to sponsors. But of course, they discovered my background. I used to teach HIV AIDS to, to medical students, and they needed someone to launch their HIV AIDS program. So I did that, and then I launched the Child Survival Program there and helped with a number of other new initiatives within Compassion and, and wound up serving as a senior vice president. Uh, but I found this organization, this uh, organization that's been around for a while. One child has actually nearly as long um, you know, a life as, as Compassion or World Vision. It's a 55-year-old organization. But... The mindset of leadership was just ready for new things, ready to adjust, adapt, uh, be agile, um, find a new way forward. And that's what I really wanted to do was to help a smaller organization really adopt some new approaches to child development, new approaches to international partnerships, and really empower and come alongside of those local partners to meet their own needs in a sustainable way. Listen, I got to get a really amazing glimpse into what uh, one child is doing in Honduras. But you guys are global. You're around the world. And so I'm sure that you are bumping into kids day after day after day that are, you know, with smiles on their faces, with, with full bellies of food. And there's you've got to probably have 10,000 amazing stories of children being lifted out of poverty. Do you have one that sort of stands out, though? There have been so many kids, kids whose journeys I only kind of briefly come across. I only see this little window, but God knows the entire story of that child's life. And he's working a long-term redemptive plan, no matter how hard the start, no matter the brokenness they've gone through, that he would take them on that redemptive journey and, and create beauty into their life. Her name was Jacqueline, uh, and this was in Tanzania in the early days of fighting HIV-AIDS. And uh, I had been trying to negotiate with local health service providers, doctors, and clinics and hospitals to provide antiretroviral therapy for kids who are HIV positive. And it was very difficult because the government had, up until very recently, right prior to that, prohibited these particular medicines from being prescribed or even being imported. But I met with this guy, his name was Dr. Sho, and he was very stoic, kind of like me. You know, he wouldn't make a single muscle move in his face as I told him about these kids and their HIV positive and, you know, the suffering and everything. And I really was just, I was like, oh, man, it's another one of those. This isn't going anywhere. I, I didn't know what to do. And then at the end of probably 30 minutes of trying to persuade Dr. Sho that the Celiana Lutheran Clinic there in Arusha ought to be able to provide antiretroviral care for we had 212 kids that we knew were HIV positive. He just leaned forward and he said, last week the government gave me 250 slots to treat people with HIV. I have those therapies and those kids are now on the list. It was like this feeling of miracle or in God's timing. It was having just left that visit that I went and met one of those kids, Jacqueline, um, who was living with her grandmother, never knew her father. Mom had passed away with HIV. And so for Jacqueline, this 12-year-old little girl, to watch her own mother suffer in that way, AIDS is not quick. AIDS is slow and hard and brutal. And for a child to watch their mom break out in sores and cough through the night and then suffer from diarrhea, and for that child to be the one who cleans up after her own mom and who goes out into the marketplace to try to find some beans for dinner or get some charcoal or whatever. Uh, Jacqueline went through all of that experience only later to be told that she has the sickness. 
And then she began to wither away, and her grandmother didn't know what to do. Grandmother had never seen anybody recover from this. The sickness back then was the end of life. And for me, when I visited Jacqueline, I did it with so much hope, and I saw her. Yes, she was at the late stages of AIDS, but I knew the next day we're going to get her to the clinic, and we're going to get her started on these therapies, which I knew would work, um, you know, not every time, but almost all the time. They, they're effective at knocking out the HIV and restoring near-normal health, and so... I prayed for her, her, you know, Lord, let's, let's hear her song. Let's hear what you put in her. What, what is it that you created when you created her? And I hopped on a plane as she was heading off to the clinic, and I got home, and I got this message from um, a doctor who was on the team with us there that Jacqueline had died. And that was, uh, that was really hard because I felt like I was too late. And two years went by, and I just, you know, kept pressing on, kept trying to do what I could for the kids that were still with us. And somehow I wound up back in this village in Arusha in Tanzania, and we were doing home visits. And, you know, at that time, we had 30,000 children in our program in that country alone. There's this girl, and she's bouncing this pink balloon up into the air and just trying to keep it in the air. And then she bounces it over toward me. And so I bounce the balloon back over to her, and we're playing this game, and she's smiling. And it was just this really joyful, special kind of moment. I picked it up, and I handed it to her, and when she... When I gave it to her, she said, thank you. And the way she said it or something about how she looked in my eyes or something in that moment, all of a sudden I got all these goosebumps and there was this just massive significance that I experienced. And so a few minutes later, there was a woman standing nearby and I said, tell me about this girl. And she said, "Um, well, that little girl um, is living with her grandmother. Her father was never around. Her mother passed away uh, and she's actually living with the sickness. And I said, and how old is she? She's 12. And as I asked more, I came to learn that this little girl, three years earlier, was one of the kids on that same list and that she was alive. And I got to have that moment with her because the therapy worked and she was cared for. And then I asked this woman, what's her name? And she said, her name is Jacqueline. So even the same name. And I think, I think what God showed me in that moment is you don't see everything that I'm doing. And you can't control every outcome. But if you are faithful to do what I've called you to do, I'll work the miracles through that faithfulness. So, Scott, I love big, bold ideas. And you've got this amazing book. It's called Hope Rising. And in it, you make this claim that you believe it is possible to eliminate extreme poverty in the world in our lifetimes. Can you expand on that? How do we get, how do we eliminate extreme poverty? Like that just sounds like something that we will never overcome. You know, it's been over 10 years that I have been sharing with leaders around the world that it is possible to bring an end to extreme global poverty and not just someday, but in our day, in my generation, specifically by the year 2035. The data are overwhelmingly clear And they're coming from the most reliable data sources, and they have been there for years and years. The answer is things are getting better and radically better and have been consistently getting better. In 1981, half the planet lived in extreme poverty. Half the planet living on less than a dollar a day. So that reference point is a World Bank purchasing power dollar. It means uh, adjust it for inflation, turn it into Kenya shillings. It's the same thing. How much can you buy in terms of rice or cooking oil or whatever? So there's this economic base 
standard that says this is what extreme poverty looks like. It's today, it would be $1.90 per day, you as an American living in your community. Go out and try to live on that. That's extreme poverty. In a short way of understanding that uh, poverty line, it is even if you spent all of your income on nutrition, you would still not have enough to meet the basic caloric intake needs of an adult male. Life without your basic needs met. In 1981, half of the planet lived in that condition. By the 1990s, late 1990s, that had been cut to 26%. And then when we rounded the corner into 2010, we broke below the 10% barrier. So extreme poverty is on its way to the history books. Those of us who've been involved in this ought to learn how to celebrate that. And I am. And I want to challenge leaders to believe that it's possible that children don't need to die of preventable causes, that people don't need to live without their basic needs met. We've made stunning progress, and our generation should be the one asking, how do we finish the job? So I've sponsored tons of kids in my life, and, you know, we've had a few from this organization and a few from that organization. I picked up one at a concert. Uh, (laughs) So it all looks the same uh, to me on that child sponsorship level. So, Scott, what's going on behind the scenes? You know, there are a number of different child sponsorship organizations. And when you're on the sponsorship side of that experience, they can feel very similar to each other. You maybe get a photo of the child, you get a letter every now and then, those kinds of things. So to the sponsor, it might seem like these organizations are basically doing the same thing. In fact, there's huge differences between the organizations in how they deliver their program, if you want to call it a program. It's what is happening with the dollar once you send in that sponsorship support. How is that dollar being used to bring benefit or blessing to the child you're supporting? There are those organizations that are committed to a model they call community development, which means the money is put into a pool and those funds are spent to do something to benefit the entire community where that child lives. And the logic in that is, you know, the kid lives in that community, and if we do good for the community, the kid will benefit. There are others, um, and one child is one of these, along with compassion, um, who believe that if we are raising support to help a specific child, we are accountable to that child and really to that child's maybe caregiver or parent to make sure that we're delivering direct and specific meaningful benefit for the sponsored child. And that's not a criticism of community development. It just says that we feel that if you're sponsoring this child, that this child should benefit in specific, meaningful ways. And so that's the biggest difference among sponsorship organizations. As you're looking around and wondering, how does my dollar get spent? You should discover, is sponsoring a child with this organization going to actually help this specific kid that I'm praying for, that I'm writing a letter to? And in the case of one child, the answer is absolutely yes. Your sponsored child will receive regular medical checkups, will receive health support, will receive educational support, will participate regularly in a HOPE Center. Uh, They will have relationship with child champions. Those are local teachers and tutors and youth pastors, mentors, social workers, the kinds of people who will come alongside of your sponsored child specifically and help them overcome the challenges they face so that they might thrive. So you, you've been working in this child development realm for a long time, it sounds like. And uh, why do you think that is the best way to change the world through a child? This world is broken. This world has so many big problems. And I think as Christians, we have to just embrace that fact. We have to recognize the kinds of things that are broken, these big social issues and concerns that we have. It might upset us today. We might post on social media about it today, but you know what? It's not going to go away overnight. 
And if we're serious about advancing kingdom work, if we're serious about mission, if we're serious about positive social change, if we really want to demonstrate the love of God in this world, we have to take a generational approach to social change. Extreme poverty isn't going to go away overnight, but it can go away. And the way to do it is by recognizing the need for generational engagement, meaning you got to think 30 years. And if you're doing that, you're going to think about kids. Because the truth is, what kids believe, what they grow up to value, what they make as normal in their life, how they live out their faith, whether or not they attend church, what they believe about the Bible, all of it. And what does that mean for how they work, their work ethic, all of it. It is formed from childhood through adolescence. That's why I believe that the most strategic thing you can do if you're trying to change this world for good is invest in kids. Help them thrive. Help them have opportunities. Help them see that God is a good and loving father. Help them believe things that are true. And scripture teaches us that if we invest those truths in them, they won't stray from it. And we have to trust God with that. So when I think about um, the value, the strategic importance of working with kids, it's with that long-term view. Yes, each child matters. Yes, you want each little one to thrive. And I care about that one with his name and his unique story. But I also look at it as a bigger picture strategy that, you know what, we need to engage the next generation and help them to grow and to learn and to build trusting relationships and to have a godly character and integrity and go on to be the solutions to the challenges this world faces. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> so where is One Child working right now? One Child began ministry in India about 55 years ago. We're focusing our ministry on... 14 countries um, with direct ministry impact, and uh, even today, growing into new countries. So in Africa, that would be in Kenya uh, and uh, Zimbabwe and Ethiopia, and we've just launched through a partnership in Uganda. In Latin America and the Caribbean, we're in the Dominican Republic and Haiti in Nicaragua and Honduras, and exploring some new partnership possibilities in El Salvador, Ecuador. And in Asia, uh, we work in the Philippines India, we're really grateful to still be in India, and things are going well there. Uh, we also work in Bangladesh and in Cambodia. We also work in the Middle East, um, some very sensitive work in that context. And it's one of the things I love about One Child is uh, kind of a wise as serpents, innocence as doves. Um, we do partnerships very well, and I think that's why we can be in high-risk environments and still serve kids in a way that honors Jesus. One of the missions that drives one child is this idea of hope in hard places. Can you unpack that for us? We're talking about the kind of hope that deserves to stand there between faith and love in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. We'll talk a lot about faith. We'll talk a lot about love and the four types of love. We, we don't talk as much about hope. And what does that really mean? Um, but at One Child, we have come to see that hope is the fuel that creates a better future. Hope is this ability to see that a better future is possible. And, and it's not just that. It's not just pie in the sky, wishful thinking, right? If, if I can imagine a better future, but I don't believe there's a way to get there, that's, that's actually not hope. That's just a fantasy. And that's not the same thing here. So hope is not just this belief that a better future is possible and this vision for it. It's also 
what we call wayfinding skills, the ability to find a path to get to that future so that it moves it out of fantasy into possibility. And it's because of that that there's a potential thing I can do. There's an action I can take. If there's a way I can get there, then I can put a foot on that path and begin moving toward that better future. And that's why hope actually includes a third requirement. It's not just a vision for a better future and a way to get there. It's also the courage to try. Because here's the thing about hope. If you see a better future and there's a way to get there and it's not hard, well, you've already gone there. It's always hard. The road of hope is always hard. In fact, hope doesn't exist without a challenge. And that is why when we are in the hope construction business, helping kids to believe there is a better future possible for you, there is a way to get there, there also has to be a lot of courage to give it a try, to keep moving. And when you got knocked down, you got to get back up and keep trying. This applies to everyone in the world, not just these kids in hard places. It applies to all of us, you and I today. We have to believe that possible better future. We have to see a way to get there, and we have to know it's going to be hard, so it's going to take courage. Most of us uh, who imagine a better future and even see a path to get there stay stuck. A lot of people will stay stuck. I mean, maybe you're staying stuck right now. Maybe you're like, well, I've always had a dream to start the bike shop. Maybe I've always wanted to write a book. Maybe I've always, whatever it is, there's belief of a, of a thing that fills you, a dream that fills you. Why are you stuck? Because you're afraid, you have fear, fear that you won't have the money to do it, fear that you'll fail at it, fear that it'll go out of business, fear that it won't sell, fear whatever. The barrier on the path between you and your hoped for future is not the barrier that you're naming. It's not the thing you're labeling. The real barrier is your fear. And it's the same for kids. So for kids growing up in extremely hard circumstances, hard places, to believe a better future is possible, and you look around and they see no examples of anyone who overcame, you know, everyone they know wound up in the same hard situation. For them to then go out and try and study hard and get a job and work hard and save a little bit of money and keep on keeping on, that takes courage. And that's what we do. We help kids discover hope amidst all their hard circumstances because hope drives that better future. So this question might be a little nuts and bolts, Scott, but can you just tell me when I sponsor a child through one child, like what happens? And does it really work? You know, child sponsorship has been around for a long time, almost 100 years, believe it or not. And um, what happens in the sponsorship program can be very different from one organization to another. But here's what I know. I know that I have experienced meaningful relationships with kids that I've sponsored. My wife and I've, I have been sponsoring children for, uh, what, almost 30 years. I mean, uh, it's a long time. And I've had the opportunity to meet, personally meet, many of the children that we've sponsored. With one child, um, we have ha- had that happen over and over where we take somebody to meet their sponsored child. And those relationships um, are authentic, okay? And that's the thing. So there are some sponsorship organizations where that individual child might not be receiving specific and meaningful benefit. It's a community development model. But there are other sponsorship organizations, including One Child, where, yes, that specific sponsored child is receiving benefit. Your letters, your prayers, all of those things are, are real. 
And we just deeply believe in that. And we believe that if you invest in a relationship with a kid, if you pray for them, if you write them letters of encouragement, send them, maybe send them a scripture or something, affirm them, value them, try to reinforce the good values they're being taught locally, that you are playing an important role in encouraging them. You are a child champion to them. And they need that. They need that voice of encouragement and affirmation. And I've seen many cases where a kid who's received a letter, even a single letter, they cherish it. They put it in a little shoebox next to where they sleep, and they've, you can tell looking at it, it's been folded and unfolded a hundred times. And so we do believe that sponsorship is an excellent way to minister to individual children and that sponsorship can transform lives, not just that child's life, but maybe even your own. And finally, Scott, we talked about child champions, that when we sponsor a child, when I sponsor a child, when you sponsor a child, when somebody sponsors a child, they become a child champion. But when I was in Honduras, I saw child champions everywhere, from volunteers to cooks to, you know, one child employees that are all making a difference to help these kids. So what more can you tell me? about child champions. Yeah, One Child is a global community of child champions. And when we talk about that term, child champions, what we mean is a person who gives of themselves so the child can thrive. That might be giving of their time. It might be a volunteer. You know, maybe you're a basketball coach and you're helping kids in your community. Um, you're a child champion. Maybe you're a teacher and you give of yourself. It's not just about educating and curriculum. It's, it's about responding to those students in your classroom when their dog dies and knowing how to give a hug and knowing how to be affirming and encouraging to children uh, on their journey. Maybe you're a youth pastor and you know what it's like. These kids are facing all kinds of mess in this world and you're there to help them navigate all of that mess. So child champions, you know, all different walks of life. Um, you could be a pastor at a church and just your willingness to speak up and teach from Scripture on God's heart for kids and how God sees kids, that's a way of being a child champion. You're giving of your influence. You're giving of that position of authority that he's given you to um, advocate on behalf of kids. So uh, one child is a global community of people just like that. From all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, they might be sponsors who are giving financially and giving of their prayers. They might be a social worker in Kenya who's helping a kid overcome trauma. Um, but that's who we are. We're a global community of child champions. And you have an opportunity to be a child champion, too. Visit onechild.org to find the child that would be perfect for you and your family. Coming up next week, we are going to continue to answer the question, why child sponsorship matters, as we visit two more of One Child's Hope Centers in Honduras, and you get to hear amazing stories of how these Hope Centers, through the Child Champions, are changing the world one child at a time. I'm David A. Dean. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. I'll see you next week right here on Child Sponsorship Matters, One Child, Honduras. This has been a production of Northwestern Media.